us step into harvest ethic number four. We've got 10 of these in total. Uh, the only week we're not doing it is the first of the month when we do harvest stories, um, which as I've mentioned before, seems to be everyone's favorite, and that's awesome. Um, and I, uh, but these 10 ethics that we've been going through, uh, they're very, very important to who we are as a church. And they're all kind of um, structured in a way, or most of them are structured in a way where it's like, this thing is more important or, or we focus more on this over this. And it's not that the other thing is not important or we don't focus on it, but all of these ethics are about reshifting our priorities, our energy spent, uh, the amount of time that we spend on these things is kind of shifting that metric to make sure that we are spending more time on the things that are really important and less time on the things that tend to not only get us in trouble, but divide, push out, push away uh, the people that God has really asked us to make sure they're loved and included. So today, number four is gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Now, if me saying that bothers you, don't check out. Don't go, I'm not listening to anything else he has to say. Right belief is the most important thing. Well, the problem with that right off the bat is uh, how many of you in this room, by a show of hands, would say that 10 years ago, your theology looked different than it does today? Okay, look around the room. Hold up your hands, everyone. It's audience participation time. Okay. So with that many people whose theology has changed, let's do this. How many would say your theology has changed from two years ago. Look around the room. The problem with elevating, getting our belief system right over gracious behavior is sometimes we're put in positions where if being right is more important than being gracious, we will miss an opportunity to be gracious and we might not even be right. How do we know that? Because 10 years ago, we would have acted one way. Five years ago, we would have acted one way. Two years ago, we would have acted one way. We would have felt one way about a situation. And then we look back on that and we go, oh, I had an opportunity to show someone love, acceptance, to, to speak up for a situation that was no longer equitable, to hold space for somebody that needed a, needed a opportunity to use their voice. And we look back on those moments and we go, well, we felt like in the moment we were doing the right thing. And the truth is, with what we knew and what we understood, we were doing the right thing. Because we thought standing up for right belief was somehow this great badge that God has to pass out to all of us. It's like being an Eagle Scout, right? If you're willing to lose friends over doing the right thing, we'd wear that as a badge. Meanwhile, when we look back at those situations, myself included, I realized that I alienated people, pushed people away, demeaned, dehumanized, was not respectful, loving, or kind in the name of, quote unquote, doing the right thing. So the reason that we, we as a church, prioritize gracious behavior over right belief is because you will never, ever fail. You cannot lose when you're gracious to one another. 
We can't lose when we, when we put, if, if we get uh, to heaven, whatever that looks like, and God looks at us and says, you showed too much grace. You know? Sorry? You, we can't, we can't err when we lead with grace. But we can and have erred when we've led with getting our, our belief system right and imposing that upon everyone else. Anyone guilty of that? Come on, can we be honest with one another? We're less honest on that one. That's all right. We're going to work on that. As you know, many of these um, little... Uh, these ethics that we've been doing have, there was a gentleman that's very prominent in the evangelical world that wrote a entire book on why these 10 ethics are wrong. And he said that really what we're saying, we're tricking you when we tell you to be more gracious, prioritize gracious behavior over right belief. Um, we're tricking you. What we're really saying is this. You can throw that translation up there. Theology doesn't matter, just be a good person. Well, you're close. I will say he's close in my opinion. I would actually like to say it this way. I'd say actually being a decent human being to one another is good theology. Come on. I'm gonna say this, I don't actually want to hear your theology if you can't be on the regular, because all of us have bad days, but I don't even wanna hear your theology if I don't see you have demonstrated consistently a life where you are kind to fellow human beings. Your theology is worthless if it doesn't lead you to a point where we love our siblings well. If we don't love our siblings well, we, we're missing the whole entire point. Uh, this is exemplified in a story that I've used many times. It looks like my computer's gonna die because it is a, well, frankly, because I didn't charge it, but I'd like to blame the computer. Um, <laughs> I'm a privileged white male, right? I don't take responsibility for my actions. Oh, some of you are gonna just write me a letter on that one, all right. Um, send that one to kk at harvestsarasota.com. I know you will. Uh, John 9, one of my favorite stories, I could almost recite it by heart, um, but we're gonna read through it. It is one of my favorite stories, John 9. It's one that I've preached on before, but it, it shows this in such a grand form. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, talking about Jesus, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I have preached this before, so it's not gonna be new to some of you, but it is a great undergirding of this ethic that we're working on today. Um, I want you to see that 
People that prioritize right belief over gracious behavior will always see humanity as theological problems. Not as a human being, but of a theological problem I have to solve before I can interact with them. Let me figure out how this fits into my theology and then I can you know, get the love and compassion and empathy thing down. But I gotta figure out what to do with this person. So that's why as Christians, quote unquote, <laughs> using that term loosely, um, we have to know all the details about somebody. How many times has he been married? Well, when did that happen? Who are they with? Are they living together? Are they married? What? It's two husbands? Hmm. Why do we have to know all those things? Why do we have to have all the questions? I'll tell you why. Because we see people as theological problems. And Jesus never saw people as theological problems. He didn't have to run it through his filter of theology to figure out how to treat a person. He skipped that part and went straight to loving, healing, holding, breathing life into, come on, delivering, breathing hope and forgiveness and mercy and grace upon somebody. He didn't have to have his belief system straight quote unquote, his theology in order, in order to help somebody, because helping somebody is getting our theology in order. Amen. Do you hear me today? Yeah. I understand that all of you are clapping right now, and that's because, like me, we are massively guilty. We are guilty. And it's okay, it's like, hey, I think he wants an applause here, but I just can't do it. Just can't quite get the hands up because this is, feels beating me up. No, we're not beating anybody up this morning. What we're trying to say is we can stop. We can actually be let off the hook because the pressure of trying to figure out where people fit into our theology is so great that you can get rid of that pressure and just start loving one another. Come on, together, being graceful and hopeful and merciful and seeing everyone as siblings in Christ. If we just let ourselves off the hook of trying to figure people out and just saw, do you understand that this body, as beautiful as it is, I just said this body and you started snickering. <laughs> Uncontrollably. You know, Robin did another thing to me this week. Should I tell you about it? She's not here. You guys have heard the pool float story. That ended up in my act on Wednesday night. <laughs> You've heard the, the yoga story, which did not end up in my act. Well, I've got another one. Once again, I wish this wasn't true. But in the evenings, we will sit down and watch some shows together. And we have a, a couch that's less than a year old. Um, and she has asked that I switch the place that I sit And when pressed for the why, she mentions something to do with the springs. So the next time we, and then she said something that my mother said to me before, which is quote unquote, you sit hard. <laughs> I 
I will tell you this, I have never in my entire life looked at another person sitting and rated how hard they sit down. So that is a gift in and of itself. I don't, it's not like I'm in a room like we've got seven in here, I've got seven I can rate right now. One, not too bad, whoa! Oh, she's, she's a light sitter, I like that. No, she said you sit hard and also, honey, frankly, you're a different body construction than I am. So the next time we sat to watch TV, I sat where she usually sits. She sat next to me, and as she walked in with a smirk on her face, I said, well, the springs will be fine. And she sat down just to shame her immeasurably, but it was great. Yeah. That's not a real thing. I'm not. <laughs> Y'all aren't making me feel better. Actually, I just, I'm crawling into the hole of depression as we speak. Um, but we don't see people as theological problems. Jesus looked at this man and saw the need, saw the opportunity to bring healing, and that transcended any theological problem. When we get caught up in religion, and you're gonna see, they're gonna, they're gonna just basically say it for us here as we continue on, we get caught up with trying to figure out how we, how we fit somebody into our theology versus learning to allow our theology to wrap around humanity that is never perfect and will never fit into our box, and then applying the things that God told us were the most important things, like loving our neighbor, and extending that to the human in front of us. Verse four, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now for those of you that are like Bible geeks and you wanna know a couple of cool things here, I'm gonna throw them out here and I don't have time to explain it, but you might think this is cool. Um, this particular uh, passage having to do with the mud actually references Genesis 2 and the creation of man when God took um, mud or the dirt and formed flesh, right? And remember, it was, not, it was not alive or human until God breathed into it. So at that moment, it was just flesh. So when God reaches down in the mud, or Jesus reaches down in the mud in this story and puts us on his eyes and asks him to go wash, it's symbolic of washing the flesh away. Interesting. And the pool of Siloam, which means scent, but it actually means outflow, which is close to scent, is the same place that Jesus said, and out of these, out of your, out of your spirit, out of your being will flow rivers of living water. He was standing by the pool of Siloam when he said that. So when he is when he's here, he's saying, I want you, he's putting this symbolic flesh, if you will, on the eyes, and then saying, go wash in the spirit. Now, this is what's so cool, guys. I, I know this geeking out a little bit here, but think about this. He he said that we, human beings, out of our, out of us would flow rivers of living water. Right? And then he uses the same river of living water to wash the lie of the flesh 
off of this, off of this man so that he could be healed. In the face of the critics saying, why is this guy in the situation he's in? Is it his fault or his parents? Which means, to me, God actually wants to use the spirit that is flowing from you and I to be the thing that washes away the lies of our flesh, to reveal healing and wholeness to the wounded and hurting. That's a beautiful picture. I don't have time to preach that, but just take that home, look it up yourself, mull over it, it's good stuff. Um, You can continue on for me. Some said it is he, others said no, but he is like him. He kept saying, this is verse nine, um, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. I want you to see that they are now pestering the guy who got healed because they want to find out how did this happen, trying to find even after the healing, even after the healing, do you see this? They still want to find a problem with it. Was it on the Sabbath? Who was it? How did he do it? What did he say? Was it in the temple? Was it out? Like, where, where was this? Instead of being able to, do you understand how blinded we are to the gospel if when somebody receives a beautiful miracle, we can't even acknowledge it because we're trying to figure out how, quote unquote, God would do that for them? How sick is that? That we would look down our nose so far at somebody as if we were in a Coast Guard helicopter and, and <laughs> it's the stand-up class. They got me doing these callbacks, all right? But I did, I think you said no jokes about your mom, so I probably should, un- I, that was one of the rules. Um, and look down at people and so think that we are above them that we would look down at people who have had a miracle and try to figure out a way to discount it. And you might think to yourself, who would do that? And I have a long list for you. I have seen it my entire life in church where we will talk ourselves out of something that is miraculous, talk ourselves out of somebody whose life is healed. I've watched people who literally came off the streets in jail for 17 years, come off the streets, a felony this list this long, be, be, you know, was cracked out of their mind or whatever else, stolen, robbed, the whole thing, have everything you can imagine going against them in life, terrible childhood, the whole thing. They come into one of our programs or something, their life gets completely transformed and turned around in a short period of time. They're free of drugs. They've paid back their probation stuff. They've paid back their restitution to the court system. They have a job. They build a business. They find somebody that they love, and their life is beginning together, and, and I bring them up here to testify or something like that or have them at Harvest Stories, and then somebody comes to me and says, did you know that he's living with her and they're not married? You're missing the point. You're missing the entire miraculous journey to get here. The guy was out robbing grandma and and the drugstore and the pharmacist over here and doing God knows what, and now they've got their entire life together and we can't 
Ask them to give their testimony because they don't fit into our theological box. They are not theological problems. They are a human being who is receiving healing and that's the most important thing. You think to yourself, that's not possible. Oh, it is. And I wanna tell you this. I haven't had a single one of you in months, maybe six months or more, come to me with even as much as a, you know that church look? Pastor? And it's always, I have a question. And there's a certain way that somebody says, I have a question, where I know, this is not a question, this is a statement. They're not seeking information. <laughs> oh no, they're making a statement through their question. You guys don't do that. Now I want you to ask me all the questions you, you want. This is a, we, we focus on questions being an important part of our faith, but nobody has come here to ask me, well why that person, or how come this, or why this, or that, or that, nothing. Not one of you. You guys get it, it's amazing. You actually, do you realize this crazy experiment called Harvest? We're actually figuring out a way collectively to see one another as just fellow siblings and human beings. Do you know how crazy beautiful this is? Whew. Stupid computer. Apparently it needs to be charged. All right, you can go on here because I know it. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he was open your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who'd received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents, and this is gonna be a little bit of a trigger warning for you guys, some of you. He's using that woke language, trigger warning. A trigger warning is just simply being kind to people who have been through trauma and letting them know, brace yourself if you need to step out, step out. Um, many of us in this room have not been listened to or trusted. Our voices have been diminished. I will say not mine, I'm not including myself in that, but many people in this room, when I've heard your stories, your voices have been diminished, you haven't been listened to, people have gone over your head to a parent or whoever, as if they needed somebody else to validate your healing, to validate your progress because you couldn't speak up for yourself and say, I'm better than I was, and have somebody just believe you. Somebody else had to come along, and sometimes it's a religious leader or a pastor who signs off on your progress. And that is just a lie. And it's a tactic of the enemy, whatever that looks like, to try to demean or diminish the actual progress and healing that's taken place in your life. And here's the deal. You don't need anybody to validate or verify 
your progress and healing because if you know that you are doing better, if you know that you're receiving healing, if you know through various means you've started the process back and dealing with some trauma in your life, you're the only voice that matters in that equation. Do you hear me? You are the only voice that matters in that equation. And this is, this is, this is the, the, boy, if there is a pattern to bad religion, we're watching it in this story. First it's, are you really healed? Well, who did it? And when did he do it? And who is he? And what day did he do it? And where did he do it? And then we get those answers. And then it's, all right, still not satisfied. Let's talk to his parents. Hey, was your son really blind? Did this really happen? Actually, the first thing was, is it his fault or his parents? Then it's, okay, Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. And then he tells them, I healed the guy. And then they say, yeah, but when did he heal you? And what day? And then he goes on to, as we see here, let's talk to his parents. Let's verify it. This is where bad religion has taken out people left and right. This is actually why probably 50% even this congregation, uh, harvest was your like last ditch effort. Some of you had given up on faith altogether. And usually it's because of things like this. People aren't believed. People aren't trusted that what they're saying about their own experience is real. And the minute somebody steps out of line of where we need them, the minute they stop singing their part in the little Christian chorus, they start squawking in a different direction, we gotta either get rid of them or rein them back in. And the truth is, you deserve to be believed. You deserve to have your voice heard and your experience trusted and believed and validated instead of written off or diminished. And as we see here, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Verse, next one. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Asked him, he's of the age, he'll speak for himself. By the way, this is not his parents holding space for him. This is his parents not wanting to get in trouble with the temple. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. I'm gonna stop there for a moment. We'll finish up here after this. This is, I've seen this a thousand times. And the punishment for this man coming forward and saying, I've been healed. My life has been transformed. It didn't happen how you expected it to. It didn't happen on the day you expected it to. And it may have not happened with the person you expected it to. But nevertheless, I know what's happened in my life. And the multiple levels of attempt to discredit this man's healing experience. And then for his parents to be more concerned with their image in the synagogue. 
how other people would perceive them, that they defer to their son. Like, we're not gonna step into this mess. Now think about this for a moment. Your son, who was born blind, is no longer blind. And all you can think about as mom and dad is what are people going to think of us? I'm gonna let that sit with you. I'm gonna let you just think about that. But it is, if your or my theology leads us to a place where we are more concerned with our image and how the rest of the Christian community views us, more concerned with that than we are that our own son is no longer blind. Let's go uh, to the next one. We're almost done here. Verse 29. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from, and now we know. Now we know. They are disciples of Moses and proud of it. And Moses played an important role in the foundation of our faith. But being a disciple of Moses, Moses' law was more important than the revelation of Jesus. And if you think, if you think for a moment, just think about your experience. We probably have more people in the church who are disciples of Moses than we have people that are disciples of Jesus. Not this one, of course. I think we're down to about 3% and I'm hunting you down. I just randomly run up and down the aisle saying, Moses, and see if there's a glimmer in your eyes. And say, I'll caught you. We became, become more more obsessed with what Moses had to say than what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to pay the ultimate price so that the law would no longer have jurisdiction over us. And they say it right here. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And after all of this, they answered, you were born in utter sin. And this is a weird way to put it in English, but if you actually read the translation, he's saying, what can you teach us? And they cast him out. When we prioritize right belief over gracious behavior, we will be completely blinded, impervious to the miracles that are happening around us. We will get to the end of a situation like this and we'll be like, 
You, you think your little miracle can teach me anything? You were born into sin as if they weren't. Nobody born into sin, nobody who is born a theological problem can teach me anything. I'll be sensitive about the way I say this, but some of the people in this church who traditional Christianity would say have been born into sin have taught me the most. <laughs> we have to stop seeing people as theological problems and we have to lead with the grace of God and realize that people aren't problems. People are people. And this body of ours is simply a shell. Whether it's male or female or something in between or not identifying with any gender or whatever it may be out there that people are experiencing. You know, they, they keep adding like new ways to describe people's gender or people's sexuality. And some of you go, when is it gonna stop? And I go, I don't actually care. I mean, I want to know to respect the person, but I don't care how far it goes. You know why? Because I don't need them to fit into my theological box. I just need to be loving and gracious and a decent human being to them and to let them know that their creator loves them. That's it. Relieve yourself of the burden. Cast off the burden of trying to fit people into our so they're not a theological problem and love and embrace them as human beings, as siblings, as another fellow citizen, as somebody who has the same blood pumping through their vein and a heart and a soul and a spirit and a mind and hurts and trauma and all of the things that we've experienced. Somebody that just simply needs to be acknowledged and validated and heard and my God, don't we ever, ever come to a place, don't we ever come to a place where somebody says, hey, my life is so much better than it used to be. And how dare we ever look our nose down at them and say, yeah, but you still have a ways to go. Don't we, we should never find ourselves in a place where we think we are so high and lofty that somebody, somebody's own personal experience of healing is invalidated and questioned and challenged. We need to listen to people. We need to hear them. And I'm telling you, this is a deprogramming thing. You can't immediately go, oh, this is weird. This is different. Oh, let me go to the scriptures. Let me figure out what the scriptures tell me to do right now. John 3:16. nope, doesn't apply. What are we going to do? That's what happens in our minds. If you've been trained in church, you have all of the things you go, is now the time to invite them to church? Should I tell them I love you despite your sin? Uh, love the 
hate the sin, love the sinner. That sounds like a good one. I heard my Aunt Betty say that one time. Oh my gosh, this is gonna work, I think. It's gonna, no, why? Why do you have to do that? Step out of the robot equation for a moment. Get out of the, which scripture is going to help me through this uncomfortable situation? It might be uncomfortable, guess what? God shows up in the uncomfortable places. God shows up in the places where you're going, I feel weird right now. Oh, you just watch, you be loving and caring and kind and listen and be respectful and let somebody tell their story and you'll find yourself mesmerized by the beauty of God every single time. I have never, I know I'm getting, I'm preaching along today and I told Robin I wouldn't because she's with the kids and she loves your children, but she has a limit. But I wanna tell you this one last thing and then we'll be done. Is that okay, church? I am, um, well, you're not gonna say no, but, um, well, John might. He might occasionally say no, but that's all right. Um, the most uncomfortable situation I was ever in, which now looking back, I feel foolish. <laughs> the most uncomfortable situation I was ever in is, um, I think it was June 28th of 2016, or the 20, yeah, June 26th, 28th, whatever. It was uh, June, the end of June of 2016, it was right after the Pulse nightclub shooting. And I was asked to do the funeral of a young man that I went to school with who died, was murdered at Pulse. A man who targeted a nightclub because he hated gay people and was proud of it. Murdered uh, 49 beautiful souls. And one of them was a friend that I went to school with and his family asked me to do the, uh, the funeral at Robarts. And I won't get into all that. And that was massively uncomfortable for me, even though I knew it was right at the time. And now I'd be like, bring it on, let's do it. Um, it was so uncomfortable for me. And I remember walking, they, they, now I'm like, no big deal. Back then, 2016, they sandwiched me between a drag performer and a video of Kissing Boys in the Street by an artist named Greg Holden, which is actually a powerful video if you wanna watch that sometime. And um, I was like in my suit and I was like, you know, like, hi diamonds. That was a great performance. And you know, like it was so uncomfortable. And because of the way that I was raised and brought up and believing that I had to find theology that would allow me to do this. But I did it anyways. And then afterwards, I thought the uncomfortability is over, but there was a line of about 200 people waiting to talk to me because I had apologized to the gay community for the way the church had treated them and told them that if Jesus walked the face of the earth today, he would have not treated them that way. There was a line of about 200 people waiting to talk to me and it was one story after another. You've given me hope I can connect to God again. I remember being raised at eight years old and hearing the pastor say, you know, slurs from the pulpit and believing I am disgusting, God hates me. And you're actually giving me hope that God might love me and I can connect to God again. And it was story after story after story. And after about an hour of this, my shirt is already soaked with people's tears and their snot. And I gotta tell you, after the fourth or fifth one snotting on me, I couldn't see a theological problem anymore. And it went on and on. And then the real uncomfortable moment came. It's four o'clock, it's time to disperse, leave. And the majority of them were heading by the hundreds in buses to walk in the St. Pete Pride Parade. 
And because of the tragedy, it happened to be one of the largest, if not the largest St. Pete Pride Parades ever. And the St. Pete Pride Parade is one of the largest Pride Parades in our nation. There was over a quarter of a million people in attendance and over 100,000 people walking in it. We're talking about somewhere around 350,000 people. And they said to me, we wanna keep talking to you, but we have to get on this bus. Will you come up to St. Pete with us? And I was like, <laughs> to what? We're gonna be walking in a vigil in the St. Pete Pride Parade. And for some of you, might, that might sound like, oh, that sounds fun. To me, that sounded like my life and career is over over and so we were all wearing top hats because that was Eddie's signature he'd wear a top hat and so I just lowered mine because there were cameras everywhere and I lowered it down and I'm like we can do this we can do this Jesus help me and I'll never forget we're on our way up there and the seat next to me was just a rotating person with a very similar story just over crying just wanting to have hope that God loved them and then the parade, looking at the faces of hundreds of thousands of people weeping over someone that died. You know why those people died? Because for the gentleman that went in there and murdered them, they were theological problems. And he believed the only solution to those problems was to murder them. And as I sat there, and I don't know how many, I don't wanna exaggerate, but from 4 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. when we got back to Robarts and the buses, I never not had someone next to me crying, weeping. My shirt was soaked. It was hot, it was June, it was sweat, it was tears, it was all that. And I remember leaving there and going, if my job is over, if my career is over, I can get to heaven one day and go, Lord, if you didn't walk the face of the earth, if you walked the face of the earth today and you weren't there, then I'm serving the wrong God. And I, re and I remember Jim and I met with some pastors who had a major problem with the direction we were going as a church. And they said, we heard you walked in a pride parade. I was like, yep. And Jim said, let me tell you the story. And he told them the story. And he looked at these pastors from our community and he said this. He said, are you telling me that Jesus wouldn't have been on that bus? Grieving with those that are grieving, reconnecting with hearts that were disconnected. And those pastors looked their nose down at Jim and I and he said, well, that's where we agree to disagree. We don't believe Jesus would have had anything to do with it. Over people grieving, over a murdered friend, a son, a brother. That's how far right belief will take you beyond the heart of God. And we know it's not right belief, but in their minds it's right belief. And I'll never, never, ever forget it. If we are going to be like Jesus, we are gonna be put in some uncomfortable situations. It's amazing how now, seven years later, that is the furthest thing from uncomfortable to me. I'm more uncomfortable around a group of people that look like me. 
act like me and love like me. <laughs> I um, You can stand with me together. Sorry, it's a little bit late. I'll tell Robin there were healings breaking out and someone got set free and I couldn't shut it down. I'm so sorry. Let's pray together. I don't think I need to say anything else. I think you understand why we believe harvest ethic number four, that we believe that gracious behavior is more important than right belief. And we believe that being gracious towards one another is good theology. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you today for your message and your word as we journey through this and challenge our hearts. And God, thank you that every heart and, and voice and mind and experience here is important and valued. We thank you that it's hard for us to deprogram ourselves, to not prioritize our theology and getting it right over being gracious to somebody. It's hard to let that go, but Lord, when we let it go, we find ourselves in a place where being gracious to one another seems to be the greatest theology there is. So just as we do this, let us be an extension of that idea, your love and your grace and mercy to one another. So we leave here today, let us be just over and over again reminded in situations that when we were faced with something that is different than we've ever experienced, let us see it as an opportunity for you to show up through us and be that river of living water that wipes away the lies of the flesh and reveals the beautiful healing that we can find in our creator. So we thank you for that today. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone says, amen. Bless you guys. We'll see you next week for Food Truck Sunday.